Hey guys, welcome back to Recalibrate, a mindset podcast designed to help you break free from the old and press on to the new. If you are a subscriber, you know by now that this podcast incorporates biology, psychology, theology, and spirituality. If you are new to this podcast, I want to welcome you. Thank you for taking the time to tune in, to listen, to learn, and to grow. This podcast has one mission, and its mission is to provide you with the resources necessary to help you break free from old mindsets, mental constructs, spiritual strongholds, and paradigms. You know, whatever it is, whatever is keeping you from achieving your best in life. You know, God has a purpose and a plan for you, and it's a great one. I hope and pray that as you listen, learn, and grow together with with everyone else on this podcast, that you too would eventually see a new you emerge from the old one. (laughs) I know you are going to like it. A couple of weeks ago, I visited Lubbock, Texas. I was invited to go share a message at Trinity Church. Pastor Carl Toady uh, invited me to go out there, and what a blessing it was. What What a wonderful congregation. If anyone from Trinity Church is listening to me right now from Lubbock, I want to give a little shout out to that congregation. What a lovely group of people. And uh, it blessed me perhaps more than my presence blessed them (laughs) for sure. I enjoyed it. And then after that, a few days later, I got to speak to the staff at Trinity Christian School, TCS. What an amazing group of people as well, people that are committed to uh, teaching biblical worldview to the children of Lubbock, Texas. Just loved it. But I wanted to share something about what uh, what happened after one of the services, actually on a Sunday. I was there Saturday and Sunday after a Sunday service. As I was out in the foyer, someone approached me and said, Hey, Milton, what is the enemy's greatest lie? Let me say that again. What is the enemy's greatest lie? And so I want to remind you that John 10.10 10 speaks of the enemy. It's also Jesus calls him the thief. John 10, 10, Jesus says, and the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, to steal your, your peace, to, to kill your, your hope, and to destroy you as an individual. And of course, he starts at the level of the mind. Now, the thief is referring to the enemy, the enemy referring to Satan himself. There is a strategy. Understand that the enemy knows you very well. He's been watching you. He's been contemplating you. He's been observing you from the very beginning. He knows your weaknesses, for sure. And so the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So I go back to the question, what is the enemy's greatest lie? And the answer is a very simple one. The enemy's greatest lie is the lie that you have believed. Let me say that again. The enemy's greatest lie is the lie that you have believed. Now, I want you to understand that whatever you believe, whatever you repeat, whatever you rehearse in your mind will become a reality. It could be the biggest far-fetched lie. However, if you're continually repeating this over and over and over, it will become your reality. 
It's just like raising children. You've heard, I mean, it doesn't take a psychologist to tell you that you need to affirm and reaffirm your children as they're growing up, trying to stick to positive words. And even when you need to correct that you always have to do it in a certain way as to not destroy the spirit of that young man or that young woman. And so whatever we think about consistently will become our reality. So the enemy's greatest lie is the one that we believe. Now, he doesn't get in our face and shout it out to us, but he uses people, situations and circumstances that would cause us to believe a particular lie. And a lie is like a seed that when it is sown, you may not see the full gamut, the full effect of the seed, but eventually it grows and it produces a harvest. You might recall, you might recall the analogy of the Chinese bamboo tree that I've mentioned before. You see the Chinese bamboo tree after the seed of this bamboo tree has been sown into the ground, you would think that as most plants, you know, you would see the result in a few weeks. You would see it break the ground and sprout and become a small structure, a small tree. Well, that's not the case of the Chinese bamboo tree. And the Chinese bamboo tree requires a gardener that is extremely patient. You see, after the gardener sows a seed into the ground, it takes about five years Five whole years for it to actually break the ground, for there to be evidence of life. But here's the miracle. Here is what I think is just <laughs> crazy. After five years, after it breaks the ground, after it sprouts, after it's, there's evidence of life from that seed, it only takes six weeks. Listen, six weeks for the Chinese bamboo tree to go to grow the size of a seven-story building. Yes, a seven-story building. So just picture that. A seven-story building in six weeks. We're talking about, now if you're doing your math, we're talking about, you know, a little less than one inch per hour for six weeks. And so what took five years to break the ground in just six weeks grows into this gigantic structure, almost the size of a, you know, seven-story edifice. It's just huge. And it all happens in six weeks. Now, what does this have to do with the enemy's greatest lie? Well, let me tell you that the enemy's greatest lie, once again, is the one that you have believed. I don't know what lies you have believed for yourself. Perhaps there are lies that you believed from your childhood, things that were spoken over your life that you believed may have come from your mother, father, aunt, uncle, grandparents, a neighbor, the teacher, who knows, whatever it may be. That lie is something that you have believed and has become this gigantic structure that has taken over your life and it didn't happen the first year. So how does the Chinese bamboo tree apply to all this? Well, let me tell you. The question is, did the Chinese bamboo tree start growing on the fifth year? That's, that's, that's the question, the proverbial question. Did the Chinese bamboo tree start growing on the fifth year? And a lot of people would say, yes, absolutely, because it was on the fifth year in which it sprouted and broke the ground. Well, no, 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 no. I want you to understand is that the Chinese bamboo tree started growing the moment that it was sown into the ground. It was watered and fertilized. And over time, it only took a few days for it to break, to sprout and to start growing. But it wasn't growing up. It was growing down, down. It was growing into the ground and it was growing not only deep, but it was growing wide. Why, you may ask? Well, the answer is very simple. 
If it is going to grow in edifice, if it's going to grow into this huge structure, a six, seven-story tall building almost, it needs a foundation. And so it grows deep and wide. And so what does this have to do with our own mindsets and the lies that we have believed? Well, the lie is that seed that has been sown into our minds. And perhaps we didn't see in our lives an outcome generated by the seed that was sown. However, over time, that seed was watered and it was watered with more lies or that lie was reaffirmed in our lives through other people, through situations and circumstances or, or simply simply because we rehearsed it ourselves, simply because we developed a negative self-talk, a destructive self-talk. We became our greatest saboteurs. Yes, our greatest saboteurs. We sabotaged our own lives simply because of the things that we were thinking. And so that seed had to grow just as the Chinese bamboo tree grew, a foundation. Those lies in our minds have grown deep and wide. Why? Well, simply to sustain greater, more impactful lives that end up destroying an individual. It goes on to form what we call a stronghold. A stronghold is a a faulty thinking pattern based on lies and deception. Deception is one of the primary weapons of the devil, let me tell you, because it is the building block for a stronghold. Strongholds cause us to think in ways which block us from God's best. It often starts with a wound we experience, a hurt or a disappointment that makes our heart fertile ground for seeds of, of lies to be planted. And on this foundation, the enemy then begins to build brick by brick, a wall of lies, inaccurate ideas about the person of God, wrongful interpretations of scripture, prideful thoughts, and distorted perceptions of how God sees us and feels about us when we sin. You see strongholds or paradigms or thought processes or faulty ways of thinking, mental constructs, visualizations, they're invisible, yet they're powerful. They're located in the mind. You see, we see people's attitudes, and those are just an outward expression of their inward state of mind. Let me say that again. When we see people's attitudes, their actions, their reactions, those are just outward expressions of their inner state of mind, of their inner state of heart. It, it's the proverbial tip of the iceberg. I remember at one point being on a ship going to Alaska, and we were called out to the deck. The captain said, if you want to see what an iceberg looks like, come out and look at it. And so we went out there. We rushed out there. I'd never seen an iceberg before. And so as we approached this iceberg, yes, it looked enormous. It looked very big. However, that was only 10% of the iceberg. That is what you call the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Now, when you think about an iceberg, you probably think of the Titanic. You know, you think about the movie, you think about the Titanic being sunk by an iceberg. And they said, you know, that the ship was unsinkable. Now, I want you to understand I just said that what I saw was only 10% of the iceberg. It was only what was above the water. What was most impressive, what was underneath the water, because underneath the water was 90% of the iceberg. In other words, underneath the water, it was the size of a mountain. It was 
Huge to say the least. And so when you think about the Titanic, the Titanic wasn't sunk by a tip. It was sunk by what was underneath the water. And so sometimes we see people's attitudes, we see their reactions, we see their anger, we see their depression, their anxiety, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. That is the outward expression of an inward lack of peace. It is an outward expression of an inward state of mind and an inward state of heart. Healing has to be birthed from the inside to produce an external reaction that is polar opposite to what they have been producing over the years. And it all starts with a change of mind. You know, Paul, the apostle, is very clear about this, and I love how direct he is. Paul says this, don't conform to the ways of the world. In other words, he says, don't be like everyone. Don't follow the culture. Don't follow the woke mob. You know, don't be part of the cancel culture. Don't do what everyone is doing. He says, don't follow those patterns. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, he's telling us that transformation will only come through a renewing of the mind. I remind believers uh, of this basic principle. The day that you said yes to Jesus, if that's the case, the day that you surrendered your heart, your mind, your body, everything about you to the Lord, and you said, Jesus, I make you my Lord and personal Savior that day. You were given a brand new heart, the scripture says. All of those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Yes, and that's true. And we celebrate. And we, we're told by the pastor, the preacher, the minister, that our hearts are like a, a slate that has been erased and we start off brand new. We are given a tender, receptive, teachable, pliable heart. And God has removed the calloused, hardened heart that we had. And so now we know that we have eternity as a promise, salvation. But let me tell you, all of that is great. And what a wonderful promise. But the truth of the matter is that your mind continues to be the same one. Yes, you have a new heart. But if you don't do anything about the mind, your life will be the same forever. It's that simple. Let me give you an example. I'll give you an example, a very, a very simple one. You know, I was, I would, I used to go to a halfway house. If you don't know what a halfway house is, a halfway house is a place where, you know, former inmates, after they have served their time in prison, they have to go to this halfway house where they spend, uh, you know, about six or so months trying to um, rehabilitate themselves uh, back into society. And so they help them, you know, they have them in this home and they have people come over and train them and help them and hopefully reintegrate them into society, hoping that they will be people that will add value to the community. And so while they were there in that halfway house, I would show up on Sundays with a, with a friend of mine, an elder from the church. Now these, these men because we were at the, uh, the, the one for men, and these men who were in the room for the very first time on a Sunday evening, while they could have been, of course, watching uh, the football game or watching a movie, 
But they themselves had chosen to be in that room with us. That room had two dingy couches. Uh, It was an old building. Uh, We didn't have a whole lot of resources in that place. But what we did was we we shared the gospel, and and I went in almost... um, from a therapeutic approach, and I would share the gospel and psychology and help them break some of those paradigms that had kept them incarcerated. And I'm not talking about the physical prison. I'm talking about being incarcerated in their minds. And so there was one man who was sitting in the crowd at one point, and uh, every time I quoted scripture from the Bible, he immediately would complete the, the, the verse. He knew every single verse by memory. He had no Bible in his hands, but he knew the scriptures very well. I was impressed, to say the least. And so that first session with these men, there were about 20 in the room, ages ranging from 18 to 60 years of age. This one, this uh, gentleman was probably in his mid-50s, and I remember pulling him aside after we were done, and I asked him, I said to him, how is it that you know all this scripture? Where did you learn all this? And he said to me, oh, I learned it uh, in prison. He says, I didn't, I didn't have anything else to do but to read the scriptures. He says, I didn't have access to anything but to a Bible. And so I would attend church services. And he said, and so I grew in the word. And I said, wow, so this must have been recent. He says, oh, no, this started 20 years ago. And I looked at him and I said, you've been in prison for 20 years? He says, oh, no, I've been in and out of prison. In the past 20 years, he says, the most I've ever served has been two years, but I've been in and out. But 20 years ago is when I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I was baffled, to say the least. I was was puzzled by his answer. And you're probably thinking the same thing I was thinking back then. Wait, hold it, hold it. So if 20 years ago you accepted Christ and you were given the opportunity to a new life and to eternity and salvation, but during the past 20 years you've been in and out of prison, what happened? Did your life not change? Well, this is proof of what I was saying earlier. Yes, he was given a new heart. The callous heart was removed. And perhaps, you know, he became a better person in a way. He inherited eternal salvation. Yeah, but the mind never changed. Why? Because he wasn't intentional about it. He continued to have the same negative self-talk. He continued to build brick upon brick on those lies that the enemy had sown in his mind. You know, he still had those mental constructs, those negative edifices in his mind, those strongholds. And so he hadn't gotten to the point of renewing his mind and seeing his life transformed. I asked those men, all 20 of them sitting in that room, I asked them who their worst influence was in their life. And they all, all together in unison said that their dad, that their dad had been their worst influence. I asked them to describe their their dads in one word using a qualifying adjective, and they looked at me and they said, can't we use more than just one word? Can, can we use curse words? And I said, sure, absolutely, if that helps you. And so the things that they would say about their dads were so strong and so sad that I had to hold back the tears. I'm a sensitive guy. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm a sensitive guy. I, I, I try to be as empathetic as possible, and I think that I am in many cases, but my heart breaks at times. But I had to hold back the tears. I'll be honest with you. When I heard them talk about their dads the way that they did, I had to hold back my tears. Why? Well, because I've never had that experience. You see, my, my dad is an outstanding individual, still almost 80 years of age. He is a wonderful human being, a, a man of God. I've never had to deal with a parent who was abusive ever. 
And so to hear these guys talking about their parents this way, about their dads, was heartbreaking. But then I went on to ask them a very last question and listen to this. I asked them this, did your father ever tell you that you would end up in prison someday? All of them, once again, in unison said, yes. He told us over and over and over that we would soon enough end up in prison. And yes, they all did. Their words, their dad's words became prophetic, prophecy over their lives. It was a seed that was sown, repeated over time, watered, and eventually grew to the size of a seven-story building and took over. And there they were back in prison again. You see, what happens in your life is not a random action that happens haphazardly, casually, or aimlessly. No. It is the outcome or the result of a preconceived idea that has been in the mind incubated over time, just like the Chinese bamboo tree, that eventually breaks the ground and grows and takes over. Solomon in Proverbs once wrote, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But yet another translation puts it this way, Where the mind goes, the man follows. Where the mind goes, the man follows. I remember the story of a, of a minister that happened to be walking uh, uh, somewhere in China. He was a minister slash missionary, and he was walking down the alleyway of uh, the downtown area of a Chinese city. And as he was um, looking through the windows and the displays of the different little shops, he encountered one that really caught his attention. Now, this shop happened to be a tattoo parlor. Now, it was a very well-known tattoo parlor because the artist was an elderly man that had been uh, doing artwork on people's bodies his whole life. He was known for his intricate designs. He was known to be the best. And so, This missionary, this American missionary, goes up to his display. He looks through the window and he looks at all of the artwork that this master artist had created. However, the missionary's attention went right to the middle of the display. Right there in the middle was a design that was far from being intricate, far from being creative. It was actually a skull with an inscription on it. It had a banner that wrapped around the skull, and it simply said in English, born to lose. It was that simple. Born to lose, wrapped around a skull. And so the missionary is quite intrigued over that. And so he walked into the shop and was received by the elderly artist. He asked him a question. First, he complimented him on his artwork. He said, you are quite the master of your craft. I love all of your artwork. It is beautiful. But I'm intrigued by a design that was right in the middle of all the rest, he said. It had nothing to do with the other ones. And it was in English. It was a very simple design. He pointed it out. He says, that one with the skull. And so he asked the Chinese artist, he says, why would anyone 
want to have that tattooed on their bodies, you know, especially with the inscription Born to Lose. The artist replied, he said, you know, that is perhaps one of the designs that is most requested by people from all around the world when they come into my parlor. He said, it's the simplest one, but yet the one most requested. And so the missionary intrigued once again asked him, he says, why would anyone want something like that tattooed on their bodies, especially an inscription that reads born to lose? And what the Chinese artist said was powerful. He said, look, it's very simple. He says, before the tattoo is on the body, the tattoo is already on the mind. Wow, powerful. He says, before the individual asks for that tattoo to be etched forever on their bodies, it has already been etched in their minds over the years. And so once again, what is the enemy's greatest lie? (laughs) The enemy's greatest lie is a lie that you have believed. Look, you have to get to a point in your life in which you start to understand that you're not a victim of your biology. You're not a captive to your genealogy. You are only a result of your own psychology is what is in your mind, what it is that you have believed. Neuroscientific research is confirming on a daily basis that what we are thinking every moment of every day becomes a physical reality in our brains and in our bodies, which affects our optimal mental and physical health. You see, these thoughts collectively form your attitude. And listen, it's your attitude and not your DNA that determines much of the quality of your life. Your thought progression is a powerful one. Listen, everything starts with a thought. And those thoughts eventually become words. I mean, if you want to know where someone is living in their minds, listen to what they're saying, because what they're saying is evidence of what is in their hearts. And so your thoughts become those words. You start to speak those things. And your words will determine or affect your emotions. You will feel a certain way because of what you spoke. You wake up in the morning and you say, today is going to be a crappy day. And of course, you start to feel that emotion. You feel depressed. You feel anxious. You feel demotivated. Your emotion will in turn also influence your decisions. You will decide how you will live that day. And that decision eventually becomes an action. And that action, if you repeat that over time, becomes your habit. Your habit forms your character and your character leads you to your final destination in life. And everything started with a thought. It's that plain and simple. Every day, we have mental options to choose from. They're either healthy or they're toxic. They're either blessings or they're curses. They're either life or they are death. You see, Deuteronomy 30, 19 says this, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. God is telling us very simply, I've placed all these options in front of you. I'm not going to force you to choose a certain way, but I'm telling you, that you have the polar opposites to choose from. You've got life and death, blessings and cursings. He says, choose life. This is what I'm, I'm not forcing you to do so, but I'm, I'm exhorting you, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you 
to choose life so that you, not only you may live, but your children as well. You see, if we choose the opposite, we are going to affect generation after generation after generation. When I deal with people as a therapist, when they come into my office, and I know that they're struggling with, you name it, pornography, drug addiction, uh, they're womanizers, they're abusers, whatever they're dealing with, it's very simple to ask, okay, was it your mother, your father, your grandparents or your great-grandparents were this same way. And they'll look at me kind of, kind of baffled, you know, perplexed. And they'll say something like, how did you know? How did you know that my grandfather was a womanizer? Or he had issues with alcohol or he, he had issues with uh, infidelity or whatever it may be. Well, it's obvious because, you know, the sins of the forefathers, according to scripture, are carried down to the third and fourth generation, whatever they chose unless we break the cycle, becomes our own reality. And so whatever you're doing today, wherever you're living today, if you don't correct that, if you don't renew the mind and, 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 and seek transformation, what you're doing today will eventually go down the generational ladder and affect kids, uh, you know, your grandkids, maybe your great-grandchildren, you know, down the, down the road. And so what we do today not only affects our life, but as the scripture says, also affects our children's lives. And so once again, it's our own decision whether we listen, we choose to listen to God's word and focus on his promises, or of course we succumb to the enemy's lies by paying closer attention to his deceiving messages. It's up to it's up to oneself. It's up to it's up to you. Of course, there are people that will try to justify their behavior, their decisions based on things like, uh, they'll say stuff like, well, I was born on the wrong side of town. I was born on the other side of the railroad tracks or, or you know, it's in my DNA. I just, uh, I just come from a long line of uh, people with issues. You know, I was abused. I come from a dysfunctional home and so on and so forth. And, and although all that does have definitely a, an effect on an individual's life, which could be long term. Uh, there's also a lot of truth in the fact that uh, that can be turned around. I've always said you can cut the cycle, you can break the chain by coming to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, relying on Him, letting go and letting God. But I also want to uh, talk about one of the big buzzwords in uh, in our world today, and uh, especially if you're an educator or you are a, uh, a health professional, med- uh, mental health professional, the buzzword is neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. And this is the brain's superpower to rewire and reorganize itself. See, the brain's capacity to become malleable and adaptable, changing moment by moment every day, that's neuroplasticity. Science has now concluded that the brain is not a hardwired machine unable to adapt. After years of research, they have concluded that the brain has this, let's call it superpower, uh, a capacity to renew itself. And, and once again, let me just repeat the verse that I shared with you at the very beginning of this episode, Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Okay? So once again, even scripture is telling us, even scripture is telling us that your mind is not hardwired. Like it can be transformed, it can be changed. But it takes a decision on your part. You see, the spirit of man is regenerated in Christ. However, the mind of man needs to be renewed by choice. And so let me ask you the question which I started out as this episode's premise. (laughs) 
What is the enemy's greatest lie? As you already know, the enemy's greatest lie is the one that you've chosen to believe. Now, let me tell you, most of his deception is based or rooted in fear. Fear is a learned behavior that you have wired in your mind through toxic thoughts. And just as you wired it in, you can also wire it out. A lot of people are afraid of becoming ill and succumbing to something like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, depression, uh, early dementia, simply because it runs in their family, simply because someone in their family tree had to struggle with any one of those that I just mentioned. But an interesting fact is this, that research has proven, and when I speak of research, you know, I, I would encourage you to look up the Mayo Clinic and John Hopkins University uh, and, you know, Psychology Today. Let me tell you that the interesting fact is that research, research has proven that 75 to 95% of mental, physical, and emotional illnesses today are a byproduct of our thought life. In other words, a lot of the issues that we're dealing today are psychosomatic. In other words, they are rooted in our thought process. They're rooted in our thought process. As I mentioned earlier, fear is a learned behavior. You see, the culprit behind many of the diseases that Americans are facing today is rooted in their immune system or a prolonged inflammation. This is caused by stress, which elevates the levels of cortisol, and this is your stress hormone. Uh, your hypothalamus sends a signal to the pituitary gland, which controls the glands and hormones, causing the adrenal glands to secrete cortisol or oxytocin into your bloodstream. Stress is at an all high and is slowly becoming an epidemic. Yes, we hear about COVID-19 being a pandemic. Well, let me tell you, stress, anxiety, that is becoming an epidemic, eventually a pandemic, affecting children as young as three. I mean, there are kids that are on Adderall, Concerta, Detrana, Ritalin, Stratera, Clonidine. I mean, you name it. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I don't ever recall any one of my friends being placed on medication. But because of the world in which we are living in today, because of the fears of pandemics, you know, the, the fear of war, you know, you turn on the TV and you Turn on social media. And right now, if you're listening to this, uh, this podcast episode right now in 2021, right now, it's today is, is we're in the month of August in 2021. If you're listening to this today, you know that something is going on in Afghanistan. And if you're watching the images of people dying, people, you know, fretting and you know, mothers throwing their children over a wall into the hands of the military to salvage their lives. I mean, you would have to be a robot not to have any feelings, to not show empathy. All of that can cause stress. A lot of people don't know how to manage stress, and therefore they cause stress to affect their immune system, to bring a prolonged inflammation in their bodies, and that will 
detonate. That is the trigger to a lot of physical and mental health elements that they will have to deal with. And so since our thought life has such the potential to guide the course of our life, this is why Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Okay. And so what, what he's trying to say is that whatever thought is going through your mind, whatever it is, you've got to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. In other words, run it through the filter of God's word and see if it does come into alignment. If it does not come into alignment with God's word, you should have a system in which you eliminate You wire that out of your mind so that it doesn't form a mental construct, a paradigm that will eventually, you know, rule and reign in your life and and produce an outcome and not a very good one at that. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Saul and his son Jonathan, which also happened to be King David's best friend. Of course, this was before David was king. Uh, He had already been anointed. He knew he was going to become king, but it took several years for him to go go from uh, anointed to appointed. And so King Saul and Jonathan went to war against the Philistine army. I believe the battle was called the Battle at Michmash. And so they went out there to fight the Philistines and uh, in the process lose their lives. Both, Both father and son died at war. And so as soon as word got out, and traveled all the way back to King Saul's palace. Everyone was aware of what had happened, and they knew that the Philistines would come after everyone who was left from the family, and they would annihilate, obliterate everyone, because they would want to make sure that no one was left from the family. And so there was a young man in the palace who happened to be Jonathan's son. He was King Saul's grandson. His name, Mephibosheth. And so the nanny or the nurse that cared for Mephibosheth, because he was a tiny, he was a little boy, I believe he was a toddler at the time, she picked him up in her arms and she fled because she thought to herself, if I don't hide this child, he's going to die in the hands of the Philistines, you know. And so they, she took him and she ran to a place called Lodabar. Lodabar was a place out there in the outskirts of where, you know, he had grown up. And it was a place where the destitute went and lived. This is the place where the sick, you know, the crazy, the poor, the people that society had rejected, dejected, kicked out of, you know, the city, uh, that's where they lived. And so Lodabar stood for a place of desolation or desolate place. And so the nanny thinking, well, you know, the Philistine army is not going to go and try and find him there at Lodabar. And the nanny knew people who lived in Lodabar. She took Mephibosheth in her arms and she ran away. In the process of running the Bible, the Bible uh, explains how the nanny fell. She tripped and landed on top of Mephibosheth, on top of his legs, causing his legs to become incapacitated. He became a cripple. And so now his, his legs were lame and he couldn't walk. And so she makes it all the way to, to Lodabar and uh, that becomes their place of residence. Now I'm going to fast forward. 
Now, there's a reason for the story, so uh, stay with me for just a few minutes. I'll fast forward. And so now King David is actually king, and he's living in the palace, and he's ruling and reigning over you know, the armies of Israel, and he is a highly respected king. And so he calls his servant uh, into his chambers. His servant's name was Seba. He says, Seba, would you please go out and see if there's anyone who is left from the house of Saul? Remember, Jonathan, Saul's son, was David's best friend. And so when he died, David grieved his death a lot. And so many years later, he says, Seba, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? Go and see if there's anyone. He says, he says Lord, there's, there's no one out there. They all perished back then. And he says, no, I'm sure that you are able to find someone. So go out and you know survey the land, ask people, and see if you can connect the dots. And so Seba goes out and lo and behold, he finds, you know, a connection. And so he comes back and he says, King, I have found uh, a family member from Saul's house. It is Jonathan's son. His name is Mephibosheth. He says, bring him to me. He says, well, he is now an adult and he's lame of his legs. He's a crippled. He can't really walk. He says, I don't care how you're going to do it, but I want you to bring him into my presence. And so he sets out to Lodabar. He goes, now keep in mind that Mephibosheth is an adult at this point. He has spent most of his life, you know, living in Lodabar. And so they bring Mephibosheth to the palace and to the king's presence. And Mephibosheth, when he sees the king and the king calls out his name, he says, Mephibosheth. Now, the reason the king wanted him there was because the king, King David, wanted to give whoever he found that was the remaining part of uh, Saul's house, he wanted to give them back what belonged to, to them whether it was property, possessions, money, he wanted to bless the member of that household in memory of his friend, Jonathan. And so so picture this, Mephibosheth is brought into the king's chambers. The king is probably sitting down. He comes in, they, they bring Mephibosheth in. And when the king stands up and says, Mephibosheth, uh, Mephibosheth drops to the ground with his face to the ground. And he says, in, in, in a position of surrender, he says, Lord, who am I but a dead dog that you would call me into your presence? And so I want to stop right there. I'm not going to go over the rest of the story and tell you that, of course, from that day on, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. I'm not going to get into that story, but I want to focus on what Mephibosheth said. Who am I but a dead dog? A dead dog. We're talking about a kid who grew up at least the first formative years of his life in a palace, who knew that his grandfather was a king and a mighty king, who also understood that he was the son of a prince and that eventually he would take over part of the leadership of the palace. But because his career was cut short and because he grew up in a place called Lodabar, a place of desolation, a place of damnation, a place that was surrounded by people who had been dejected and rejected from society. We don't know what kinds of conversations that he encountered, what, what was spoken over his life. We don't know the type of physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse that he had to endure. But I am certain that he had to face all kinds of trials in all kinds of circumstances, and he heard all types of trash. And so all of those outward uh, factors 
influence Mephibosheth's development. And so he no longer saw himself as royal lineage. He no longer saw himself as royal priesthood. He saw himself as a dead dog. You see, he believed the lies of the people. And so how does that relate to what I'm you know, sharing with you today? Well, it's very simple. You are royal priesthood. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're the apple of God's eye. You are precious in his sight. But at times you listen to what the world is saying about you. You are allowing all of this to bring confusion into your life. And you eventually lose your own identity. You're believing the lies of the enemy. The enemy knows your weakness. He knows your kryptonite. And he shoves it right in your face, debilitating you, causing you to reroute God's purpose, God's will for your life. And so in wrapping this up, let me tell you, there are four things that I want to encourage you to do if you've been dealing with or succumbing to the lies of the devil, whatever he's been telling you. Whether he's been telling you you're poor, you know, you grew up poor, you're always going to be poor. You know, your family died of diabetes or a heart attack, and so will you, you know. Your, your parents were abused, you were abused, you are going to be an abuser. You know, whatever the lie may be, whatever it is, here go four steps, very simple steps. The first thing that I, I would encourage you to do is to identify. That's the first word, identify. Identify your thoughts. In other words, bring your thoughts into conscious awareness. You know, bring them into, uh, bring them to Christ. Bring all of your thoughts captive into the obedience of Christ. Psalm 139 says this, and this would, this would be a prayer that I would encourage you to, or, or, or a verse that I would encourage you to incorporate into your prayers. Psalm 139, I believe it's verse 23 that says, look through me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. See if there is any sinful way in me and lead me in the way that lasts forever. And so step number one is to identify. Conscious awareness. You know, Carl Jung said, uh, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it your fate, your destiny. And so you have to bring those things into conscious awareness. Number one, sometimes you can't do that on your own. Sometimes you need a therapist. You need someone who is trained and skilled. You know, in, in my office, I oftentimes see the proverbial light bulb go off. You know, I see people have that, what I call the Christmas tree effect, where they just light up completely because they have found, they have, they have been able to see, to understand the thought that has been keeping them bound for so many years, and now they're able to deal with it and allow themselves to be free. So number one is identify. Number two is focus. 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 Deep thought. Okay. This is focusing as deep thought and visualizations. Reflecting. Reflecting at the end of the day. Because reflection produces physical changes in the brain. That's part of uh, neuroplasticity. And so let me read a verse to you. Philippians 4.8 says, and, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Okay, let me stop right there. So when I say focus as number two, deep thought visualizations, 
deep thought visualizations, reflecting at the end of the day, asking yourself questions like, did I live? Did I love? Did I make a difference? What could I have done differently? What could I have done differently to produce a completely polar opposite outcome? You know, And so Paul is saying, whatever you think about, whatever you fix your thoughts on, make sure that they are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about these things, especially if they're worthy of praise. If they're not, scratch them off your list. If they are not in alignment with any one of these um, qualifying adjectives that I just shared with you right now, if they're not, scratch them off of your list. But you have to be consciously aware of it. First, which is identify. Two, focus, deep thought, visualize. And number three, write. Write, as in writing, you know, is journaling. So this action will consolidate the new thoughts, connecting both hemispheres of the brain through the corpus callosum and activating the basal ganglia, the, the cerebellum and motor cortex. Writing it will bring more clarity and will allow for your thoughts to go from short to long term. This is the power of writing, guys. Listen, the prophet Habakkuk wrote in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord gave me this answer. Write down clearly on tablets what I reveal to you so that it can be read at a glance. You know, Habakkuk was known as the uh, the complaining uh, prophet, and there's a point where he is complaining to God, and he's, you know, asking him, you know, what, what whatever happened to those promises that you made, Lord? You know, when is this going to come to pass? And you've probably heard that verse, uh, I believe it's chap- uh, verse 3 in chapter 2, where he says, though the promise, this is God speaking to the prophet, he says, though the promise may linger, may, may tarry, expect it because surely it will come to pass. But before that, God is reminding Habakkuk, he says, write it down clearly on tablets, uh, whatever I reveal to you so that you can read it at a glance. And so the same is true for our lives. Whatever the promise is, whatever God has spoken into our lives, whatever we have heard from him during our time of prayer or devotion, write it down. Don't just, don't just, uh, you know, trust that your mind will remember, that your memory will remember at all times. Write it down so that you can see it every day. Put it somewhere. Post it somewhere. Put it on a piece of paper and a poster board somewhere where you can rehearse it on a daily basis, which leads me to number four and the last, uh, the last step, which is rehearse. Rehearse and revisit. Uh, good intentions aren't enough, my friends. You know, you can't just have good intentions and expect things to happen. Intentions coupled with discipline and consistency are key for success. And so James 1 uh, verses 22 to, uh, through 24 says this, Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. And so it doesn't just stop at identify, focus, and writing. You've got to rehearse and revisit this every single day, every single day, just as those thoughts that have held you back, just as they were wired into your mind through repetition, over the years, over time. The same is true about wiring those things out of your mind, those things that are holding you back, those hindrances, those that, uh, that what we, a lot of people would think is default thinking, which is not because we weren't born that way. It's, it's wiring those things out. And how do we do that? Again, through repetition, repetition, over time, repetition. And that's why number four is rehearse. 
rehearse, rehearse, revisit, rehearse, revisit. In other words, you rehearse and you reevaluate. You go back to God and you say, search my heart, O God, put my thoughts to the test and show me if there's any sin in me. Okay, so it's rehearse, revisit, rehearse, revisit until finally you start to see that your outcome is a different one. All right, well, I hope you got it. (laughs) Some of these uh, or all of these steps will be in the show notes for sure. And I want to end with this, guys. I I want to uh, I want to remind you, I want to remind you of of a simple, just a simple, very simple fact. You are made in God's image. You are not a mistake. You are not a reject. You you are far from any of that. You are God's own design. The very fabric of your life was created, knitted, the Bible says, in your mother's womb by his very hands. So you are made in God's image. I want you to know that you have been designed for deep intellectual thoughts. So if you've ever been told that you're not smart, you're stupid, that you'll never amount to anything, the way that God has wired you, the way that God has created you is for deep intellectual thoughts. This is found in Psalm 139. You see, you also have the mind of Christ. And you may think, well, I have the the mind of my father, my mother, my grandparents, you know, it runs in my DNA. And there is some truth to that. But in all reality, as a born-again believer, you have the mind of Christ. You have the capacity to reroute your whole life simply by changing the way that you think. And lastly, you are wired, my friend, for power, love, and a sound mind. You have not been given the spirit of fear or timidity. You have not. And so I want you to understand that. You were not wired with fear in your heart. You allowed your circumstances to make that of you. But your default mode is power, love, and a sound mind. I hope this episode has helped you. I would love uh, to hear from you. If you don't mind rating this episode with five stars, of course. (laughs) And leave us a positive message. Give me some feedback. Your feedback always helps fuel this passion that I have for instructing, teaching, and helping people become free. And of course, I give all the glory and all the praise to the only one who deserves it all. (laughs) Jesus Christ. You guys have a blessed one. I will see you once again in a few weeks. Bye-bye.